It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Chopping It Up, Episode 11. I'm your host, Mike Halen. I'm the uh, Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Marvin Albali, COO of Franchise Global Brands and author of Restaurant Excellence, The Ultimate Guide to Success in the Food and Beverage in, uh, Industry. Thanks for doing this, Marvin. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to the show. You got it. So you've had a unique career path. Can you share a little bit about your journey in the restaurant industry. Sure. So I started my career. Uh, the first thing I started with was that I pursued education in hotel and catering management. I studied that for four years. And after graduation, I took my first job with Chili's as an assistant manager, uh, made all my way up to a training manager. And uh, I was awarded the operator of the year by Brinker International. Um, the same franchisee that operated Chili's was also the master franchisee of Fuddruckers. Uh, so I, got, I was promoted to an operations consultant and supported 22, uh, 22 restaurants uh, for about four years. And then one of the, another franchisee approached me. Uh, he was a franchisee of six restaurants, uh, Fuddruckers restaurants, and approached me to become a company director. Uh, he wanted to grow his company. So I joined the franchisee and uh, I opened uh, Caribou Coffee, uh, Marble Slab Creamery, uh, and the Great American Cookie, and uh, two more Fuddruckers. In total, we grew from 12 restaurants to 22. It was an incredible experience. I was only 22 years old, and uh, I had to learn everything from uh, design to site selection all the way to opening. Um, after that, I joined Applebee's, uh, the largest casual dining chain in the world, uh, as a company director for one of the franchise franchisees. And then uh, I had a great opportunity to support 66 restaurants, Burger King restaurants in North America. Uh, and I, so I joined the corporate office of Burger King in Miami and supported um, 66 restaurants in British Columbia and Alberta in Canada. Uh, it was my only fast food experience, QSR experience, but it was amazing. Uh, and then uh, I joined one of the most iconic restaurant companies in North America, and one of the oldest, actually. It's called White Spot uh, out of Vancouver, about 150 restaurants in total. Uh, they have two categories. They have a, a fast casual uh, uh, a brand called Triple O's, and they have a sit-down restaurant family dining called White Spot. Um, a fantastic company. Uh, they won best managed companies for about seven years in a row. Um, an amazing culture. Um, I just fell in love with that company. But then a huge opportunity came my way uh, through a recruiter 
to move to Dubai and, and lead 445 restaurants for the Intercontinental Hotel Group. Uh, the Intercontinental Hotel Group uh, also operates Indigo, Hotel Indigo, Regent on the luxury side, uh, Crown Plaza and Holiday Inn. So I couldn't refuse that opportunity. So I moved with my family to Dubai uh, and worked for the Intercontinental Group for five years. During that time, Mike, uh, they also uh, gave me the uh, opportunity to lead Europe and Japan as well. So in total, I ended up managing 776 restaurants. And a year ago, about a year ago, I joined Franchise Global Brands. Uh, I'm one of the shareholders. And uh, we've been doing consulting, franchising, creating concepts, improving performance for several restaurants, uh, Boston Market, the Great Harvest Bread Company, Famoso. We consulted for Wingstop at one point and several other restaurants in the region. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, very cool. Not many people that I know, excuse me, in the industry that have, uh, have experience from QSR to fast casual, casual dining all the way up. Uh, to fine dining, which is which is very cool. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write your book? Yeah. So, um, as you said, one of the reasons actually was, you know, I look back on my career and I, I see that I, I worked both for the hotel business, the luxury side, where you learn finesse, culinary innovation, design, luxury, and then from the franchise world, I learned. Uh, marketing, consistency, financial discipline. So one of the one of the reasons I wanted to write a book, I said, you know, I have a really great exposure, and I want to share that that experience with people. And the other reason, and the more important reason, is as you know, the restaurant business has one of the highest failure rate in the world, uh, and it's sad to see people invest all their life savings in opening a restaurant for it for it to fail after two to three years. And I really wanted to help. So I thought maybe if I write a book that will help people in every aspect of the business, we can avoid all that business failure that happens with, with new restaurant uh, owners. Um, as you know, in the industry, if you look in the, in the uh, industry today, if you, if you search for books about the restaurant business, you can find a book on culinary, on recipes, you can find a book on marketing, but you really don't find a book that covers every aspect of the business. And that's exactly what I've done. Yeah, the book is is great. Uh, I think all our listen, listeners should go out and grab it. Um, I really appreciate the level of detail in the book. Um, you know, especially for a guy like me, you know, I mentioned to you before, I, I have a little bit of experience as a short order cook, a little bit of experience making sandwiches and working the cash register at a deli, but, but that's it. So, um, it, it definitely, um, opened a nice window for me into, into how a restaurant should be run. Um, so I really appreciate it. Uh, and I was really impressed by the amount of input you received before publishing. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I really <laughs> raised the bar so high that it took me three and a half years to complete this book. Uh, so, after I wrote it, I sent each chapter to three or four top professionals in the world from that uh, subject. So let's talk about the kitchen management, for example. The kitchen management and chapter nine, which talks about recipes improvement. Both chapters were reviewed by actually nine chefs. Some of the chefs were trained by the best in the world. 
So uh, some of the chefs that um, shared their input and feedback and added value to the book were trained by Gordon Ramsay, Jason Atherton, Pierre Gagné, and Paul Bucuse. Same thing I've done with the design chapter. Uh, Brian Tappan, the former uh, former designer of the Cheesecake Factory, and designed several Applebee's restaurants, and currently uh, works with a company that has 600 restaurants. And Bina Pollock, who designed more than 35 American brands, restaurant brands, and Terry wow. So really, that's the methodology that I took for each chapter, and and and, that, and there's a ton of value out of that. Uh, for sure. Uh, early on in the book, you posted a picture of a viral LinkedIn tweet that you had. Basically, it said, uh, most people think they know, know the restaurant business because they eat out a lot. And uh, that really resonated with me. I feel like a lot of restaurant uh, stock investors think they know restaurants because they eat out a lot. So uh, I definitely uh, connected with that. Um, what are the biggest pitfalls for entrepreneurs that are taking their first stab at owning and operating a restaurant? That's a great question. Uh, and there are several answers to that. But what I, for, for the past 25 years of experience, what I see is the following. So um, new restaurant owners, typically in the beginning, are very much focused on service, food quality, atmosphere, on the top fundamentals, uh, team training, but about, after about a year, they lose focus, and the focus turns on marketing, revenue, cost management, and administration work, a lot of computer work. And when that happens, when you lose focus on what matters to the guests, you start losing guests. So that's one aspect. The other aspect, some of them get really excited and open another store, but the, the second store is not even near, it's very far from the first store. So um, then they dilute all their effort and then they spend a lot of time between the first store and the second store and then lose focus as well. So if you want to expand, I would say expand carefully and don't go too far where you require a lot of traveling time, which is a time lost on the road. Um, other operators, uh, I see the ones that fail fast, unfortunately, are the ones who are running restaurants by calculators. So they're obsessed with cost management, they're obsessed with profitability, and it doesn't work that way in the restaurant business. In the restaurant business, you have to serve quality, deliver quality, quality of experience, and quality of food. Once you impress your guests and earn their trust, then you'll be successful. Very cool. Um, so for those listening in that haven't read the book, uh, Marvin equates, you know, restaurant success with levels of a pyramid and, uh, exceptional food quality is, is at the base. Uh, so can you speak to the importance of consistency, craveability and signature dishes at a restaurant? Right. Uh, these are three different elements. Uh, so consistency, uh, the reason I put consistency there. I remember watching a Netflix show uh, for Anthony Bourdain. Uh, it was called The Last Magnificent. It was about a chef called Jeremiah Tower. And he said a phrase in that, in that show where he said, the beast, the religion of any restaurant is consistency. And it resonated with me a lot. Now, I don't see a problem in consistency in the franchise world. Uh, but I see a huge problem and challenge with independent restaurants and hotels. So that's why in the book, I, there's a, about five to six pages explaining in details 
how do you achieve consistency? Uh, because Mike, you know, as they say, consumers trust or the lack of it comes from consistency. That's one aspect. The other aspect, which you mentioned craveability, and where in the book I talk about having at least two appetizers, uh, two main course items, two desserts where people would crave, um, because if people don't crave your food, it's gonna be, you're gonna have a hard time um, with repeat visits or with creating loyalty. Think of Cinnabon. A lot of people say, oh, I, you know, <laughs> I'm craving, I would like to have a cinnamon roll. Uh, think of Krispy Kreme when they first started and yeah. they were extremely popular. Shake Shack as well. So you always hear that, you know, I miss that burger, I miss that donuts, I would love to have a cinnamon roll. If your customers are not saying those words, if you're not hearing those phrases, you have a problem in the R&D department. And, and the last part, signature dishes, um, very simple. If, you know, you cannot succeed by fitting in. You can only succeed by standing out. And if you don't have signature dishes, which goes hand in hand with craveability, and you, you don't have unique items, then you, if you have a Caesar salad like everyone else, if you have a, a burger like everyone else, I wonder how do you create a following? I wonder uh, how your marketing department will be able to market your brand. So I think your chef, your R&D department, need to come up with few items with specific marinade, with a special way, a uh, special sauce, a uh, special cooking procedure that no one can match in your city. I think that's really important. Yeah, for sure. And getting back to Cinna Cinnabon, man, I think the best marketing uh, ever is just the smell of a Cinnabon, right? You can smell it, if I feel like, from halfway across the mall, and it smells fantastic. Um, definitely something that creates craveability. Um, superior service and hospital hospitality obviously are crucial. Next level of the pyramid for you in, in the book. Uh, hiring well and the importance of menu knowledge. Those were two things that you mentioned in the chapter that, that really stood out to me. Yeah, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, challenges with, with hiring the right people. And they say, you know, we're not competitive enough from a salary standpoint to hire the best people. I slightly disagree because in my career, I did hire people at minimum wage who were brilliant. So what I coach about in the book, especially for front of the house service employees, you really need to look for personalities. So when I do my interviews, I'm, I'm looking at the smile, the attitude, the positive vibes, uh, um, the, the teamwork attitude. I'm not so much obsessed with the skill, because I can teach you how to open, to open a bottle of wine. I can teach you how to serve uh, food. I can teach you how to uh, pre-bus a table. That's not really difficult. But if you have the wrong attitude, it'll be very difficult to change that. So yeah. if the hiring and the recru recruitment is based on that, you'll have an amazing team, very positive, that you know people that help each other, uh, very friendly, and you'll, you'll do well in that department. On menu knowledge, I talk a lot about it in the book for two reasons. First of all, there is a food safety aspect and there is customer's health aspect. About uh, three to four months ago, uh, there was a guest in Mexico, uh, a British customer in Mexico, who's got an allergy from sesame. He ordered a salad and asked the food servers, if there's if there sesame in the, in the salad. And they said, no, 
Obviously, they didn't know, but there was sesame in it. The customer ordered the salad, had the salad, and unfortunately, Mike, the customer passed away. Oh, wow. The allergy was so strong. So, so when I coach and train restaurants in the region and internationally, I tell them 99% menu knowledge doesn't work. And that's one of the reasons. Now, someone might say, you're exaggerating, you know, no food server will know 100%. Well, the other aspect, we know that confident food servers sell well if you want to do an upselling program, a suggested selling program, without great menu knowledge, you will not be able to achieve it. Someone might say, listening to this podcast, I know all of that. Yes, many restaurant owners know that, but very few of them do quizzes or tests or training on a daily basis. So they end up going nowhere with that. It's really, really crucial from a sales standpoint and from a customer satisfaction standpoint. Yeah, and speaking of training, I mean, it's really been it's really woven throughout your book. I was I was um, almost surprised a little bit. I probably shouldn't have been, but uh, how much you talk about training uh, throughout the book and, and how much you recommend restaurateurs um, train their employees. I mean, whether it's daily, monthly. Um, who you recommend does the training? Can you can you talk a bit ab- about your process and and how you recommend sure. um, uh, restaurants about, approach it? Sure, Mike. I talk about the training a lot because, from my experience, the best operator in the world train well. And I'll give you last year, I was in New York uh, with my family, um, went to Danny Meyer's restaurant, Gramercy Tavern, and I was impressed. I was wowed with the food server training. Actually, on that day. Two food servers came to the table because one of them was shadowing a trainer. And we here in Dubai, we have Zuma. You're familiar with Zuma. It's a big brand uh, globally. And uh, another brand called Le Petit Maison and Orfali Brothers. The training is incredible. And they have high volumes. They're always fully booked. So there is a direct correlation between training and success. The problem is with many restaurants that they get busy or because they have uh, hourly employees, they don't believe in training or high turnover. Say, listen, I have a high turnover. By the time I train an employee, they leave. But there is no way out. you got to train them because the other option is having untrained employees serving your people or cooking your food. So I offer two solutions in the book, Mike. Um, One of them is really easy. Uh, With the daily shift briefing, pre-shift briefing, you have at least 10 minutes for the front of the house and 10 minutes for back of the house. So what I would do and what I put in the book, just take a menu item and describe it well with the food servers. Ask about the ingredients. Ask how do you upsell it. And share one training tip. I'll share one with you right now. If there's a customer complaint, what I teach is don't justify, always rectify So someone says, my fries are cold. Don't say, I just brought them from the kitchen. Just say, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring you a fresh portion of fries. So this is a training tip. So think about it. In 90 days, you would have taught 90 tips. You will notice that the team skills have improved significantly because you're training every day a new thing. And if you use the service chapter, The service chapter was designed in a way where you can use a tip from each section of the book, of that chapter. So that's one aspect. For back of the house is the same way, or I like to call them heart of the house. 
the same way. You take your recipe. So imagine this, uh, Mike. You've got a grill cook, salad, salad cook, uh, uh, an expediter, a fry cook. And you're talking about an item from the grill station. When you're talking about an item from a grill station, you're, you're indirectly cross-training the salad employee and the fry employee. So that's the beauty about um, training every day during pre-shift briefing. And the other, the other solution is at least one, once a month classroom training, but not lectures. It's full of role play, role play, and role play because that's what makes the real behavior. And that's where you see the mistakes and you can correct the team and coach them. So these are, uh, in a very, very brief way, uh, some of the things I mentioned in the book about training. I thought that... It was excellent. I, I think you mentioned, too, that uh, the GMs and the assistant GMs aren't doing all the training, correct? Yeah. So when, when I worked for Chili's and Applebee's, we had uh, food server trainers. Uh, we had hostess trainers. We had um, a grill station trainer, a prep trainer. So these are employees that run a regular shift, but they were trained on how to train others. And when we have a new employee, they learn the best behaviors the best standards from those guys. So we just don't put you with a senior employee because sometimes you might have a senior employee who's got a lot of bad habits. So so you create a problem for yourself. Yeah, and I'd imagine it creates a good pipeline for potential managers down the road, right? Uh, absolutely. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. So those trainers that you were training at least once a month become the backbone of the operation and become part of your succession planning and actually, one key point here, Mike, become the protector of high standards at your restaurants. When they see something wrong, they stop it. When they see a shortcut, they stop it because they're the ones who are leading high standards. I like it. Uh, in, in your experience, uh, is there pushback from employees about that much training? Um, how are you, and how are your GMs taught to lead and motivate your hourly workers? I have never experience or face an employee who doesn't want to learn be it uh, nowadays there's a lot of online learning it's all on a cell phone uh, gamifications and quizzes and all of that i've never experienced someone saying no i don't want to learn um, but i've seen managers who were too busy to follow up with the trainers to ask about employees and see what they've learned and and that's kind of product productive to be honest cool and i, I appreciate uh your willingness to seek suggestions for operational improvements from your teams. Uh, and, and it seems like you did it on a regular basis. And I'm sure the employees appreciate that as well. Do you have examples that were especially successful? Maybe something that uh, you recommend everyone think, thinking, uh, everyone think about doing? Yeah. So one of the, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a great question, Mike. Uh, at one point in my career, uh, I was managing a restaurant company of 22 stores. And I came up with an idea of, I want to, I heard at one point that the Big Mac came either from a franchisee or from an employee. And it became the number one sandwich for McDonald's worldwide. So I said, I want to ask the employees, even the dishwashers, about what could we do better? So what I would do every quarter, sometimes every month, I would ask four questions to every employee. What are the top? I, your top ideas to, to drive sales? What are your top suggestions to reduce cost? What are your top three challenges at work? And any other concerns or suggestions? 
So I remember doing that, and at one point, we had an employee who noticed that we have no curtains in all of our walk-in coolers and freezers. And you know, I always knew that, but when you work in a place for a long time, your eyes get used to it. So I was like, that's a great idea. So we bought the curtains, we put them everywhere, and here's what we achieved. Less insects going to the walk-in cooler, better temperature of food, so less spoilage, and the compressors of the walk-in cooler and freezer would work less, which means less electricity cost. So we took John, took his picture, gave him $100 reward, and circulated his image, his, this photo, throughout the company. The next month when we did the same exercise, guess what? We received a ton of suggestions and ideas. And that point, that was, was a turning point, Mike, because I was no longer leading alone. I started leading with everyone, and everyone was putting their ideas. So you changed the game completely. So I, that, that's one of the best things that ever happened in my career, actually. Very cool. Uh, in um, in the book, you also advocate advocate for monthly bonuses. So, um, you know, I'd imagine there's some benefit there because it's it's a high turnover business, right? So people are motivated uh, to actually see that bonus money. Um, but are there any other benefits uh, to monthly bonuses that you like to speak of? Yeah. So I, I don't believe in an, in an annual bonus or quarterly bonus. So the way I structured the uh, the uh, the bonus uh, at, my, at my company was on monthly basis, and this is how it worked. So if you were a restaurant manager that worked for me, Mike, you would receive one-third of your bonus if you achieved the sales target for the month, and two-thirds if you achieved the profit target, an additional one-third if you achieved the guest satisfaction target. And the reason I had those three, because if I say only profit, you can cut cost and kill guest satisfaction and get 100% of your, of your bonus. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to happen. So the way we did it, at the end of every month, when the PL came out, you would come to my office, the uh, finance manager would come to my office, and as a restaurant manager, you had to take me through your, your expenses and how are they going up or down from last month. You have to show me your guest satisfaction scores, either uh, on Google, on open table, also whatever uh, in-house program we had, like Empathica, and of course the sales targets. When I used to, and I used to issue the check right there and then, if you achieved the three, even if you achieved only one portion, the sales, and it it changed everything, Mike, because people knew, oh, in 30 days I'm going to get my bonus, I'm going to work hard for it. I know what to achieve, and I'm going to make sure I don't have repair and maintenance issue. I don't have waste issues because I don't want my food cost to go up, which will kill my profit. So I turned the restaurant managers into entrepreneurs, into business managers, not just employees. And I recommend this bonus plan to every single company on earth because you, nobody wants to wait a whole year to get a bonus. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, and, and in the restaurant business, there's a lot of examples that um, you know, if you get the culture right and you hire uh, hardworking entrepreneurial people and you have that entrepreneurial type structure, you know, think Outback Steakhouse back in the day and uh, a place like Texas Roadhouse right now, they those 
places are humming, man, you know, and it's, and it's, uh, because of the quality, uh, um, of the GMs and, and how hard they're working at it. So, um, that's good stuff. Uh, the top of your pyramid, it's restaurant profits, but you only gave it, uh, one and a half pages in your 300 page book. How come? And that's intentional because throughout the book, the message that I'm trying to to express the, the, the philosophy is as follows. When you have great food, great service, great atmosphere, highly trained employees, motivated and inspired, and you're active in marketing and you manage your cost reasonably well, profit becomes a natural outcome. You don't even have to worry about it. That's, and that's what exactly I write in the book. Because, you know, you cannot achieve profit when you have low sales because of bad, bad food or bad service. It's as simple as that. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, all right. So, yeah, great job on that book, man. I, I really enjoyed it. I have a, I'd like to move on and ask you a couple of uh, other questions uh, outside of the book. Um, are there any interesting or challenging projects that you're working on at FGP at the moment? Uh, or is there an issue that clients are especially worried about right now? Yeah, uh, look, the, the international franchising slowed down a lot because what I'm seeing globally, Mike, uh, people are going or, or, more, or entrepreneurs are more in favor of chef-inspired restaurants, uh, mom-and-pop restaurants, uh, versus about 10, 15 years ago was all about franchising, at least on the international front. What people are worried about are, are what you're worried about everywhere. Inflation and uh, employee turnover, which has been the case for a long time. Um, and for both, yes, in the U.S., a lot of people did um, menu downsizing. They reduced their menus. But it's much more than that, Mike. And uh, sorry, I'm going to use the book as an example. In the cost management chapter, we explain about cross-utilization, Minimizing single-use items, um, uh, you know, counting how many ingredients you buy and questioning why do you buy those ingredients. And, and not everything should be passed to the consumer uh, because there is a certain point where you can't raise prices anymore and you have to be very yeah. intelligent in your processes and procedures. And again, we go back to training, right, and the importance of training. So that these are, you know, inflation, employees turnover, and, and a slowdown of international franchising. This is, these are the top three challenges that I see. Very cool. Yeah, and productivity improvements and, um, are, are, you know, are, are something that management teams are talking a lot about. They're also talking about uh, reducing waste um, and, and continu continually trying to get better at that aspect um, to save money on their food costs. So uh, all good stuff. Um, and are you familiar with the new Burger King U.S. turnaround plan? Uh, do you have any thoughts on the plan specifically or any ideas about what your former employer can do to boost sales and operations right now? It's interesting you ask that because at the time when I worked under Steve Weiberg, uh, who was the president for Burger King for North America, we were experiencing um, kind of a turnaround at the time. Uh, Whopper, which is the most important sandwich in, in, in the burger and the brand, we we were doing uh, freshly cut lettuce, uh, um, freshly cut tomatoes. Uh, we reduced the shelf life of burger holding, burger patties. We changed the French fries. We brought smoothies. We brought digital menu boards. So what, it was an amazing period, by the way. And uh, 
and I, I, I admire what Steve has done at uh, that time. Um, I've read a little bit about what um, Burger King is trying to do now with a lot of remodel and technology and investing in the restaurants. And, and, and that's the right way to go because um, this, it's so competitive right now. And other QSR brands have invested a lot of money in the last few years. So if you're viewed as dated and, and, and old, you're kind of losing market share. So I support it. But the only thing I would say Sometimes companies spend a ton of money into, on technology, not on product. I am a firm believer. Uh, think of Chipotle, for example. Chipotle did not invest a ton uh, on technology. It was always about great ingredients, great food, and that was the philosophy of, of their CEO, um, Steve, if I, if I remember the name correctly. Uh, so I would spend, if, if, I, if it were me, I would spend a ton of time on making sure I serve the best food ever. It doesn't matter if it's a digital menu board or a regular menu board. I think I think that's what brings people back. It's not the menu board that brings you back. It's that hot, tasty burger that brings you back. I think that's great advice, and I think that's a great plug for your book because you cover all of that uh, in there. Marvin, thank you so much for doing this. This is great. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, well, uh, they can either find me on LinkedIn, Marvin Albali, um, also, uh, or they can go to our website, www.franchiseglobalbrands.com. And, uh, and listeners can also reach out to me at mhalen1 at bloomberg.net, and uh, I'll be happy to connect you. All right. Thanks again for doing this, Marvin. Thank you. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.